Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new Redefining Cybersecurity Podcast with Sean Martin. Have you ever thought that we're selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Well, perhaps we are. Let's look at how we can organize a successful information security program that integrates business culture with people, process, and technology to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at pentera.io. Hello, everybody. This is Sean Martin, your host of the Redefining Cybersecurity Podcast here on the ITSP Magazine Network. Podcast Network, that is. Not just a network. And uh, where we get to talk about all things at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. And and as the host of this show, I dig deeper into cybersecurity, which, funny enough, uh, sometimes crosses over into the world of privacy, and uh, not always, but there's some overlap there and and uh, perhaps some conflicting things as well, which we, we may or may not touch on today. Um, a, a good friend of mine posted a, a note on LinkedIn, which is where, honestly, that's where a lot of my inspiration comes from, new topics and interesting things coming to bear. And uh, a, a new book is on its way, uh, The Privacy Leader Compass. Uh, co-written by Dr. Valerie Lyons and Todd Fitzgerald, and I'm thrilled to have uh, Dr. Lyons on with me today. Doctor, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> Delighted to be here. Uh, this is going to be fun talking about privacy and and the, the word compass uh, excites me because I'm I'm all about how to operationalize something, and for me that means because the way my brain works, it means a project, <laughs> you have a start and a destination and hopefully some, some decently defined path of how you want to arrive with success toward whatever the end is, maybe multiple ends, multiple milestones, but nonetheless, a compass guiding you is, is super important in my mind. And uh, so we're going to talk about the book and, and some of the things within it. Before we do that though, um, a few words from you about your journey and uh, leading up to uh, the writing of this book. So um, what I suppose took me to the book um, was I had I'd spent a number of years in privacy, working in privacy prior to that, working as a CISO in cybersecurity. So I'm a bit like the human version of 27001 and 701. You know, I have an extension. And that extension has been the last decade in privacy. And then I kind of decided to formalize that with um, a PhD in privacy. Um, so that took me over uh, five years, essentially, to complete that PhD. And then 
when I finished the PhD, it's it's kind of like bucket list, bucket list, bucket list, you know, a, a series of different things. I, I wanted to to really bring some of that knowledge that I had gained over those years to the fore. Um, I didn't want it to sit in a vault um, and, and just gather dust. I wanted to bring that knowledge um, and not specifically the PhD research that I did, but more the, the knowledge that you amassed sort of around a PhD um, in terms of, of all the reading that you do and sort of being aware of different pieces of research that are ongoing and going to conferences, amassing a knowledge. That's really what you do in a PhD. And um, I'd already seen the the quality of the CISO compass. I'd seen how it was structured. I really liked the way it wasn't jumpy because a lot of the scholarship that I'd seen and literature that I'd seen was quite jumpy, particularly with multiple authors. So I, I partnered with Todd um, to sort of leverage that structure, which was the 7S model to produce a book for privacy leaders rather than cybersecurity leaders. And that was the, the privacy leader compass. So that's how it was born. Nice one. Nice one. And, and you, you equated it to, uh, to having children in your post that I saw. And oftentimes we, I mean, we, we, I'm a father, so we create another being and we do our best to shape it and form it. And then off it goes. Right. And it does its thing. And hopefully it, it brings, as a child or in the form of a book brings goodness <laughs> to those that interact with it, right? I just hope that it's not going to ha have as much of a need for investment after its publication <laughs> than, than the child does. Um, but um, it is very similar in terms of you're nurturing something for a long time and nothing is happening. No one knows about it. It's, it's, it's the big secret. Um, but you're working away on something for a long, long time. And then one day it gets delivered, you know, it's in a box and you open it up and there it is, this thing, a book. And um, for people who've written more than one book, I, it's like having your second child and your third child. It's not the same as the first. The first was just the, the big experience, the big surprise. And, and that's what it is for me. I, I thought a book would be uh, just like children. I quite romanticized it and it's absolutely hard work. Writing a book is, is not for the faint hearted. Um, and so you, there's so many similarities between having a baby, romanticizing it. I had romanticized my first child out of all proportion. I was so disappointed by the reality of it. Um, but I, I'm, I'm much more realistic about the book than I am about having children. And to your point about investment post uh, post release, if you will, um, I, I, I suspect, I don't know, even best based on my own experience, a lot more work beforehand goes into creating a book. You talked about the research for your PhD, the work that you've done over the over the years. Um, I don't know. Can you share a little bit about how all of that came together? Because nothing can match hands-on experience, right? Um, and then there's studying the topic and looking at best practices and leveraging frameworks to kind of help shape one's mind and how they might approach it. And then there's the research that just fills all of that. <laughs> it's an empty space, if you will, whatever's left with 
other people's thoughts and experiences and trials and tribulations. How did you pull all of that together uh, in, into the into the model that that the so in, in the book, uh, I can pull it together in that I, I pull in um, a framework that's a, actually a business-oriented framework. Uh, so that's kind of very much my academic me. Um, my academic me is somebody who reaches out to different theories and, and different structures to adopt them and, and apply them in a different context. That's very much sort of the academic background. But I also know from my academic background that that allows you to stop the jumping. I had a really interesting conversation with a 19-year-old uh, recently where, where when she saw my book, she said to me, um, well, how do you know you got everything? And I thought it was a great question. You know, it's just so big. How do you know you got everything? And, and I said to her, it's because I used a framework to actually structure it. That's how I know I got everything. But I may not have gotten 100%, but at least I know I got 98 you know, that, that I, I short of, of developing an encyclopedia. It, it had to be as much as I could possibly get in in a very structured way. So I use this, the McKinsey 7S model. It's a it's a time and tested. It's quite an old model, um, but it's a, a business oriented model, and and it's essentially designed to uh, determine or to establish um, effective organizational structures so that you can build an effective business. Um, and so we took that and we applied it to the privacy organization, and to essentially develop a good privacy business. So all the things that are looked at in the business in the, the McKinsey 7S model, we've applied to the privacy program so that you're building, you're starting at the base, the S strategy, and you're working your way all the way up to the leadership styles that you have. So that's, that's how we kind of brought it together. Um, and I think when I look back on sort of the PhD and my experience, um, I've an experience, like also my other academic background is my, ma I have a master's in leadership, uh, executive coaching. So that was all brought into the book because it, I bring in a lot of the tools and techniques I learned during those master's programs. Um, and, and then Todd, um, had already applied the 7S framework to the CISO compass. So it was it was a straightforward exercise for him. What he needed was the privacy expertise. So we were um, we were uh, you know perfect bed partners for the book in in the marriage of of the two sort of histories that we had. And I, and I want to ask you this: the the um, when I hear of things within an organization. They're often referred to as programs. So you have a security program, a privacy program, a platform engineering program. And what you just described was replacing the word program with business, which to me could be pretty profound, right? Because you have to look at potentially things through different lens, not just what is the objective, but what's, I'm assuming, what what's the cost and return of achieving that objective, right? And, and and are you able to do that? Do you have the resources and the skills? So maybe can you touch on that a little bit? Um, yeah, it's a it's a really good question. Um, business effectiveness, 
which is essentially what the 7S model is, if you're looking through it through the effectiveness. So rather than looking at the privacy organization um, as a return on investment and what money do you get back from that, I think there's a separate way to look at that. But what you're looking at is the effectiveness of your privacy program or your privacy organization. And that effectiveness can be established by a number of different things. Trust your customers, having trust. Uh, so if your customers trust you, then you're obviously doing your job right because privacy breaches will decrease trust. Lack of breaches. Um, you can have lack of fines. Um, there's reputation. In, you know, you, you, there's lots of things you can do to measure the effectiveness of the actual program. Um, return on investment for privacy is a very, very difficult one to measure. It's a very difficult one to measure. Um, what I can say is that if you look at the Fortune 100 organizations and what's in their CSO reports, um, I'm not saying you can quantify the measurement, but in their CSO reports, they do have ESG figures. So you'll see quantification there. And CSO does include privacy and cybersecurity in, in the CSO reports of those Fortune 100 organizations. So you can get metrics. If you look at those reports, you can get a number of different metrics that, that can provide sort of insight into effectiveness. Um, and, and I think you're going to see that increase a lot more over the next two to three years where those larger organizations in Europe will have mandatory CSO, the production of CSO and ESG publications. So that becomes mandatory for just a, a limited number, but definitely those Fortune 100 and, and in fact, Fortune 500 most likely. Um, so yeah, it, it's very hard to determine the value of privacy and, and your return on your investment. But at its most basic, if you look at it at a very basic level, it's going to be no fines, you know, compliance, data protection, um, uh, no breaches. Um, they're the very basics. Uh, but I think there's much more if you start looking at um, your consumers and society, like decreased privacy concerns, increased consumer trust, increased intention to purchase things. These are all things that will result from effective privacy programs, but not necessarily just yours. Uh, so, so many questions in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to put this out there because one, one of the things I often ask my guests, and it's typically in the conversation or the context of cybersecurity, and I'm, I'm a risk management guy, at heart. So everything for me is how, how do you reduce exposure in the first place? Um, which could help with just as an example, if, if I'm worried about privacy, maybe I shouldn't collect the data in the first place. And if I'm not collecting as much, maybe I'll need as much, uh, storage and, uh, heavily reliance on massive replications of data for disaster recovery and uh, sovereign cloud or sovereign digital sovereignty requirements and I don't know lots of these things which then ultimately could impact ESG results right if you're not yeah. using much data center so what are your thoughts on help and I don't know if it's how much you of this you cover in the book maybe but using the understanding of 
what privacy is and what risk to privacy is to really help companies achieve something better than just, I'm going to protect all the data that I've collected because I've already collected it. So there is a slight difference between, I, I, I think we, we have to sort of recognize that between the US's approach to privacy and Europe's, but data minimization is a regulatory requirement in Europe. Um, now, I'm not saying that that means that Europe does it better than the US. I'm just saying that it is a, a regulatory requirement. Therefore, we would consider data minimization and the principles, because those those FIPS principles, the fair information practices, they are enshrined in GDPR. So instead of being sort of discretionary or with some leverage to kind of fiddle with them somewhat, they're mandatory, they're they're enshrined and, and so they're they're regulatory requirements. In terms of the book and how the program that we've uh, and the framework that we've developed around it, um, applying the 7S model, we look at different things to try to establish that robustness that, that really you're referring to. And, and so privacy by design, for instance, would be one of those things. And again, privacy by design is a regulatory requirement in GDPR. So, it, you know, um, at the same time, we've written the book to be, um, and it was intentional, to be um, area and, and location and, and jurisdiction agnostic. So uh, we we recommend and, and, and say that you should be doing privacy by design. This is what it is and this is how you need to implement it. Um, and so privacy by design would be baking privacy in right from the get-go. And and it's a, it's a very simple process really uh, because it's not realistically practical when you're talking about lots of legacy systems and legacy data. You can't build privacy in you know it has to be an add-on at some point and, and we accept that but when you are looking at the risk now of a legacy system and legacy data that you collected already you have to look at it with the mindset of privacy by design and those principles and see how you meet those principles and those principles of FIPS. But I think where we move and, and that's an important part of the book sort of what makes it different is we move from just compliance, FIPS, regulatory requirements into what else do you need to think about? And what are those things that you're never going to get, you're going to struggle to get funding for because they're not regulatory requirements. And at the same time, there is a return for doing them. And they are things like consumer trust. So we talk about ethics, and, and I've been studying ethics for years because my PhD is titled Doing Privacy Right, Not Doing Privacy Rights. And, and so incorporated there is ethics. And um, the ethics of privacy has become very important now because we see AI and the issues with AI. Um, but it shouldn't be kept to just AI. When we talk about ethics, we should be thinking, uh, I've simplified it into just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, and, and I think that's the space where we see real value from privacy is making privacy something that engenders increased consumer trust and actually creates a sense of community and, and, and social concerns reducing about privacy as a result of what we do. 
I mean, I can give you a good example would be Cisco. Cisco do an awful lot of work in this space of, of advocating for stronger privacy, of advocating for a stronger internet, for, you know, and they, they've written amicus briefs and there's a, there's a lot of evidence out there of work that they do in the background um, to promote privacy. And, and I suppose in my PhD, what I try to do um, is to put a value or a sense of value on what that increased consumer trust means to an organization and what privacy activities create greater consumer trust, what privacy activities that organizations can do create greater um, privacy concerns, what activities do they do in that space of non-regulatory requirements. So things they do like writing amicus briefs, like developing open standards, like lobbying against privacy or lobbying for privacy. Those things have a value in terms of how much consumer trust they generate, how much privacy concern they generate. So we've tried to bring that into the book in terms of advocating for what organizations can do that will engender increased consumer trust beyond the regulatory minimums. And I'm excited to get into some of the some of the content in each of the each of the chapters. Before I do that, I want to get your view on how how this book comes to people. <laughs> Let me I'll rephrase that. that. Didn't sound right. I'm trying to figure out. Is this when you use a framework? I, my initial thought is it's a step by step helping somebody create a program that that follows a bunch of best practices and, and leverages a bunch of knowledge. Um, but I I can also see where a book can leverage stories and storytelling to uh, to help people. I guess gain gain insights that they that they can't get just from looking at a framework or an existing project plan that they can tweak, and then there's then there's a way to present things that makes it thought provoking. So it's not just a not just a guide, but all, or a reference book, but can get people to think for themselves in the context of their own business in the region region regions that they're operating within. So what combination of that and more or less <laughs> does this book represent? How, how do you expect people to leverage it, I guess? I, I, and again, it's a great question, Sean. It's, it's, it's a reference book. I wanted it to be a book that would be on the desk of every privacy leader, um, that it would be their go-to almanac. Um, but it is um, also a guidebook. And also, most importantly, similar in structure to the CISO compass, it has um, contributions, ca cases, cases and, and vignettes and uh, stories, as, as you call them, um, from more than 60 pioneers in, in privacy. Um, some really, really incredible people have written uh, in the book um, to support or or provide a case or their examples of how they dealt with a particular challenge related to that particular chapter or that particular sector. Even in fact, the um, foreword is written by Anne Kavukian, the mother, if we're allowed to use the um, pronoun mother of uh, privacy by design. Um, so 
there's incredible wealth of contribution in the book in terms of learning from the history and the mistakes and and the experience of others. And I think both Todd and I would be um, staunch advocates of the collaboration of connecting with and learning from others who have tread that particular path in the past. Why tread it yourself um, when you can learn from them? So um, I, I think it's also going to be stories, you know, war stories and learning stories from these, you know, pioneers in privacy and in the privacy industry. And also there's, uh, you know, we, we didn't just stick, sorry, just didn't stick with um, privacy because there's people who've worked in trust and people who've worked in cybersecurity and people who've worked in ethics. There, there's lots of different um, elements that we've tried to find the right pioneers for those particular sections. Yeah, that's fantastic. And at, at some point here, I'll, I'll, I'll present the spot and then I'll put you on it wherever you're comfortable <laughs> for one of those stories that, that stick out to you. Um, so you can either share that now, or I, I want to go through some of the, uh, some of the topics in the chapters as well. So maybe, maybe we do that. And as we're going through, um, some of these, uh, maybe, maybe a story comes to mind that, that you feel like sharing because when, the like roads there <laughs> that's the spot i'm going to put you on <laughs> you can you can paraphrase that but uh so let's talk about the the, the beginning there's roadmap landscape strategy i kind of combine those three and to me th those are very dynamic elements so i'm curious how you present that in the book uh in a way that stays fresh as as people start to build their program, because um, privacy pre GDPR is is different than now, and of course in the U.S. there are a bunch of privacy uh, data protection uh, rules and laws coming around. Uh, some a lot of driven from California. So how and of course business is changing, internet global business is changing, um, technology is changing. So how, how do you kind of all those three together strategy landscape and and uh, a roadmap for success how do you present that in a way that that allows for things to be dynamic um well as i said one of the key parts is making it agnostic to any particular jurisdiction so it's not about California. California is in there, obviously, uh, huge pieces of legislation. So you're going to find California in the, the, the legislative piece. Um, but, you know, developing a strategy, it doesn't matter whether you're in the US or whether you're in Europe. When you're developing a strategy, you want to uh, create a privacy vision. You want to ask yourself, why were you hired to do this job? Is it because the last person was was rubbish or were they fired or you know what was the reason that you were hired to do this job and and that doesn't matter in any jurisdiction and and so um we go through the different things that you need to explore in the book in terms of developing that strategy um and so i don't believe 
that there's any need for the frameworks to account or our framework to account for different jurisdictions. Um, but in terms of how can we provide flexibility, if you want to call it that, I think by keeping it agnostic, you you provide some flexibility. Um, but there's with privacy, when it's in legislation, it's very hard to be flexible. And I've seen... I've seen people try to simplify it and, and do various different things with legislation. It doesn't work. Legislation takes an awful long time to build. It takes an awful long time with an awful lot of really experienced people to create it. And so when it says X, I, I have the, the theory of don't fiddle with it, except that that is what it is and you must do it that particular way. So there's no flexibility really in legislation, but there is in interpretation. And so in the interpretation sp space, you know, we have sort of incorporated how you can interpret different pieces of legislation. The appointment of a DPO versus a CPO, there's flexibility there because um, in, in, in Europe, DPO is obviously a, a GDPR role. It's, it's very much specified. If you call somebody a DPO, they need to follow a set of rules. So we make it clear that there are other words you can use if you don't want to follow those rules. If you want to, someone to become a privacy champion, for instance, they're not a DPO. And they therefore don't have to follow those DPO rules. Um, and, and, and we've seen that a lot, our, our experience would, would, would say, we've seen it a lot where people, by forcing titles, have forced roles to do things that actually the organization doesn't need to do. Um, they've, they've, they create more record keeping um, as a result that they don't need to do all because they misname a particular role and the CPO role and the conflicts between those two roles and other roles. So there's a lot of flexibility in how we deliver and, and that flexibility is incorporated into uh, the 7S model as we go through the 7S model. We don't say in, in the book, you must implement a framework. We explain why frameworks are great. You know, the NIST cybersecurity framework and the privacy framework are, are to me, I'm, I'm a, a fan. Um, but there, we go through the different frameworks and we explain why you would use one versus the other and, and how you can use them and how you don't need to certify to them. Because a lot of people think that if you use 27001, you must certify to it, but you can use it as a framework. You can absolutely structure your program. You don't have to attest to it. So again, we've brought flexibility in there. So really there's in business, there's no point in saying to people, other than legislation, you must do this. In, in privacy, it's the same. Legislation says you must do this, but you need to think about these other things as well and how you might achieve them if you so wish. And here's the benefits of doing them if you so wish. I love it. And it, it, it's interesting that you brought in the role and, and the human element here because I, I wanted to kind of bounce around a bit and, and touch on staffing and skills and, and some of the things you mentioned uh, to me, say, understanding and scoping <laughs> as well. Um, so having, having a clear understanding throughout the organization of 
what's in, what's out, who's doing what, to whom, when, why, per regulation, per our values, per whatever. Can we achieve this? Where do we need help? The, the big, which obviously goes back to the, the strategy and, and roadmap piece. Um, so talk to me a little bit about the, the, the staffing and the skills part of this and, and what you cover in the book for that. So staffing, um, I, I'm bringing in my, my, my master's in leadership and I, the, my, my experience of leading privacy teams. Um, uh, my struggle was always, and, and many people I spoke with um, who work in the privacy community in Ireland and, and internationally and cybersecurity people, because I was a CISO for 15 years, um, is these forging teams, uh, you know, you've got to form them, you've got to reform them. We've all heard the phrase storming, forming, norming, performing. Um, but it happens so often, and especially now, that teams grow and reduce, grow and reduce, and they amalgamate because they move into different teams and teams amalgamate. So there's a lot of change in organizations and privacy and cybersecurity are no different with that change. And so it's forging those teams, making them work together, um, that we, we try to find a way or to, to offer to readers in the book a way to forge teams um, in a way that reflects how that particular team is working right now and what their, what their strengths are what their weaknesses are. Um, and so I use Belbin's, Belbin's team roles to do that. Um, I've always used it. I've been using it for years for many teams that I've worked with. Um, I'm a resource investigator um, under Belbin's team role. It's, it's not a surprise given I've done a PhD. So I'm, I'm demonstrating my role all the time, writing a book, same again, resource investigator, networking with people and um, trying to get them, you know, to to contribute to the book and um, to to know these pioneers and be able to to get them to contribute to the book. Um, that's very much the resource investigator. But do not ask me to do a project plan because it will not be a good thing, you know. Um, and I've learned that over the years. That that but that's my Belbin team role. And so I, you know, I'm very important in a team, but when I have a team, I also need to make sure that I have a, a planner and I have an implementer uh, because they're not me. And so I use Belbin's team roles for, for many of the teams. I use them for, for where I work now. I manage a team of about 30 people and I use it, it, it for those people as well. Um, and then I, <clears throat> I use another one called Goals, Roles, Processes and Interpersonal Relationships, GRPI model. Um, it's from a, a guy called Beckard. And, and both these, uh, Belbin, Meredith Belbin is an old um, sort of team roles model. Um, it dates into the 90s, as does GRPI. But they're time tested. They work. Um, they're very effective. GRPI is a, it's a wonderful tool for when you're forging a team and you want the team to become a high-performing team, and I don't mean that word high-performing team to, you know, work them to death kind of thing. What I mean is, um, I, I often use the analogy that when I was having my first child, it was an emergency cesarean. And if you've ever been in a theatre, that's when you see a high-performing team where everybody knows, because I, I he was premature, so there was about 20 people in the room. 
um, everybody knew what everybody was doing and everybody was ready to do their particular job. And each person only had one tiny little job, but they knew exactly what it was. And the room was filled with people, but there was no chaos. Um, so I, I think that GRPI is essentially taking away chaos from a team. Um, and when you take chaos out of the team, when you, when you bring CAM, it's a really nice workspace for people. So it's not just about creating a team that's high performing, they're, you know, their, their output is amazing. It's also about creating a team that work well together, that are nice together, that understand each other, you know, and, 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 you know, kind and, and, and understanding and empathic and GRPI helps to, to reach that space. Uh, where people actually know the roles and responsibilities of everybody else and themselves. They know how they're going to interact with each other. You know, what are we going to do when somebody's late for a meeting? Um, and uh, one of the things I often suggest um, is that everybody claps um, when the person comes back in again or when the person arrives, because it, it everybody laughs and it's quite light, but it's a sort of a deterrent for arriving late at a meeting. And so, um, I, you know, there's lots of different interpersonal things that you, you can go through and agree right up at the get-go for that team. Um, so that's the GRPI piece. And then on the skills, the skills piece is, is really interesting because the privacy leader, um, one would think up there at the very top should be <clears throat> the, the, the actual subject matter expertise. Um, that should be at the top. But when you're leading a team, those leadership skills, that empathy, um, they're also just as equally important. So I'm not saying that one pips the other, but I do say that uh, when I'm recruiting a consultant, because that's the role that I, I, I often am recruiting new consultants for our team, um, I look for somebody who's got the soft skills the project management skills, and I can teach the subject matter skills. The, the subject matter isn't as important in my view as them being able to work in a team. Um, you know, there is very few people who are working in isolation. Most people are working in a team. And so that team skill, that being able to navigate teams and how they work and how they interact is so important. And so we go through those skills in terms of the, the privacy leader. What are those key skills that they need to have? They also need um, another series of skills, which I believe takes an awful long time to learn. Um, and that is how to communicate to the board or to a really senior executive level, because they talk a different language and you must learn that language. They switch off in 30 seconds if you haven't started to speak in their language, which is going to be strategy. And it's going to be, you know, the shared values. It's going to be, you know, this, the, 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 the numbers that they need to hear about, the revenue that, you know, they need to hear about the breach and the fines, the, the language that and the things that they're interested in are different than your day-to-day -day stuff and you need to learn that skill. Um, and I think that takes experience. Um, you know, the first time I spoke to a board, 
my mentor at the time was at the end of the table and I saw him put his head in his hands as I started to speak because I knew he was saying to me, you just got this wrong. <laughs> but you know, I learned from that experience. Um, I learned from that experience to dumb it down. That was my lesson, you know, mm. dumb it down. Um, so uh, they're the, the the key skills. Project management to me is is an enormous skill for a privacy leader because you are running multiple projects at the same time. Right. So. Uh, we're, we're getting close on time. I want to touch on this one thing because um, I don't want to let it go. It's it's around styles and values because you talked about the comm and the, in the theater. Everybody has a role. Um, presumably, everybody knows what's going on, um, and and that's real life. But in but in also real life in business, we don't always know everything, and. There is a ton of ambiguity and perhaps uh, not always a common understanding <laughs> of who's doing what and when, which can can lead to chaos and certainly drives an opportunity for decisions to be made. Do we go left? Do we go right? Do we touch it? Do we leave it? Do we do this? Do we not? Whatever the, whatever the decision is. And to me, it's it's a values-driven leadership style that empowers the team to make the best decision with the information or lack thereof that they have knowing who, who's going to take the reins to, to drive that decision forward. So uh, any thoughts on that? <laughs> and obviously in relation to the book. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, leadership style is, is going to influence hugely. Um, how the team works and makes decisions. Are they going to be collaborative? Are they just going to have decisions pushed on them? Um, in in the chaos, um, is somebody just going to become quite authoritative and 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 guide them, or is everyone going to be like a headless chicken and and flap about? Um, so in the book, what I've done is I've taken, um, there was a famous article um, in Harvard Business Review called Leadership That Gets Results. And it was by Daniel Goleman, who wrote the book, um, Emotional Intelligence. And so he built these, and it was based on a, a series of, of research, uh, based on a series of studies that they did over three years of various different leaders um, and to do establish based on the emotional intelligence, the criteria um, that he had already established when he wrote the book, what different styles of leadership were there in terms of emotional intelligence. And he came up with six leadership styles. And he has said that they were like a set of golf clubs and that you were on the golf course. Um, you had to make a decision as to what club was needed for the next shot and that one leadership style wasn't enough that there were these six leadership styles and you had to be able to choose from these six leadership styles um, at a particular moment in time and that he said that a good leader would need to have at least four clubs in their bag um, and that there was two clubs the coercive and the manipulative ones where um, where 
not really good to have in the bag, but sometimes you might need them, but that you really needed to be careful with them. Um, my experience is I've never seen their need in my work life, um, but I suspect in something like perhaps a mergers, uh, an acquisitions situation, they might be, um, but they, they have negative effects on the team. There's no two ways about it. Take a look at Twitter and, uh, or X as it's now called, and, and Elon Musk uh, a year ago, in fact, today, um, uh, the effect that had on teams when a, a different leader pulled out the club, the coercive club. Um, so we go through those six leadership styles, when to use them from a, a privacy leader's perspective. So we've analyzed each style and gone through how you can use those styles within your privacy team and what are the circumstances where maybe you might want to turn the volume up on certain styles or when you might want to turn the volume down on certain styles. But you can do, uh, what, what I think is interesting about the leadership styles is you can kind of go through them and if you honestly explore yourself, you can figure out if you've got four in you. Um, I'd say most people have two. Um, I think I probably have three. Um, so the fourth, hmm, um, I, I think you probably need a, a little bit of, of hardness to, to play with the fourth club and the fifth and sixth, I, I just don't play with. Um, but most people I've spoken to say they have definitely got two of the leadership styles and they, they fall into them naturally, but they're not always the same two. Um, so I think it's worth exploring for people to see if there's a style in there that they need and where's their shortcoming. Um, if, if you know that you've got a shortcoming, maybe there's a style that you could learn. Um, but I do think that when you are in a privacy leader role and you have a lot of people who are looking to you to make a decision and to make a decision quickly or to make a decision that affects them, um, that you need to make sure that you choose the right club for that moment. Um, and it's, it's, it's not necessarily natural. Some people say it's natural. I don't think it is. I think sometimes you just need to take time out to think, what should my le leadership style be in this particular circumstance? Oh, always go for the driver. Just... <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's a fantastic analogy. So as we come to the end here, it, it's, I, I'd love to hear a story. So either one recalled from, from the book or one personal that you've experienced uh, in, in your in your years doing this something that that demonstrates a change in how an organization approached their privacy program how an organization approached their privacy program or any other story that uh, well i I think um, I think what I think is more interesting, I'm not going to say I'm not going to answer that because the <laughs> privacy programs can, you only have insight into a privacy program of what the organization tells you. You have to work in the organization to know truly 
what the privacy program is, whether it's just compliance and whether they're reporting that they're wonderful. Um, they call this looking good versus being good. So um, there's a lot of whitewashing of privacy in CSO reports, for instance. So if you read them and they actually take time to read them, they're just window dressing compliance. Mm. So they're saying we trained everybody in the organization. We've done this, we've done that. But actually, they had to do that because GDPR said that they needed to make sure that they had everybody trained. <clears throat> so when you take that lens off and you start looking at organizations and what they're doing, who's really building privacy programs that are um, truly exceeding regulation you know that they've they've done more and so they've seen privacy as something worth pursuing beyond regulation so they're in that i know they're getting more funding than just compliance funding so if you look in the fortune 100 you'll see that organizations like coca-cola and, and and mondelez and food organizations they're doing nothing they just do compliance because they're not dependent on data and it doesn't influence their business in any great way, personal data, I, I should say. But when you look at organizations like Apple, like Cisco, um, interestingly, General Motors, um, uh, HP, Dell, um, these all have um, CSO reports where you can see that they're doing things far in excess of regulation. Microsoft uh, does a huge amount in excess of regulation. But again, wear a different lens because, for instance, Microsoft would say, um, we train all our staff, irregardless, we, we have um, trained all our staff um, in privacy awareness training, irregardless of the requirement to do so. And uh, we have achieved a level of GDPR compliance, regardless of whether it's required to do so, because we believe it's the strongest uh, piece of legislation. But that may not be why they're doing it. They may be doing it because running a, a, a patchwork of compliance to legislation is an absolute nightmare to figure out who what country needs to comply with what section. So if we just pick one and it's the most difficult, we only have to adhere to one and we just make life easy on ourselves. And so again, that could be whitewashed. So you do have to have a very cynical lens to see through some of the, the things that are said within CSO reports. At the same time, I have the view that I don't care. It actually doesn't matter because if, if you need to do something in privacy that exceeds re regulation because you want to put it into your CSO reports or you want to bring it to your stakeholders and your shareholders in, in a corporate report, then I'm the winner. I, I you know, I, I actually don't care what your motivation is in that it's improved privacy a little bit more than just as far as regulation. So I believe it's a win-win. I do believe that there's some organizations like Cisco um, that do have privacy at heart, um, but then it's what they sell. Their products actually are used to protect privacy. So 
that they that they're used by some to compromise privacy. They 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 try to disconnect from that and say, well, it's not us that's using it. It's that government over there that's doing it, not us. And and we don't agree with that. Um, and and so I think they do have to disconnect themselves from it. Um, and and so that to me is more interesting than just looking in someone's privacy program. Um, because I think most organizations are just doing compliance and and very little else. Um, but the, the the Fortune the Fortune 500 is where you need to look if you want to see the organizations that are doing more. Um, who I have the greatest regard for are the startups who come to my organization and say, can you uh, do us a, a data protection impact assessment or can you do um, some work for us? And, and we know it's not compulsory for them, but they want to do it because they want to do the right thing by privacy. And, and they're, the, they're the programs that amaze me, that I, I, I think, wow, we got to you. So, yeah, because presumably it, it, it's a difficult decision to take uh, funding <laughs> that could potentially shorten the runway or take away from other market driving or in market enabling features or services or whatever. Yeah, so to make that decision, it's uh, it's pretty pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But I think what they want to say is we're doing, we want to do the right thing here, mm -hmm. and that's the value that they want to communicate to their potential clients. Yep. Yep. Value, multiple uh, meaning of value there, right? <laughs> their values yeah. and the value that they're bringing. Absolutely, yeah. Love it. Well, Dr. Lyons, uh, fascinating conversation. I'm, I'm sure we've uh, simplified 472 pages, I think you wrote. <laughs> <laughs> to, 476 but at the beginning um the, the it was 52 pages was written on when they initially released it and i was so annoyed because it looked like a child's book you know <laughs> <laughs> you know 476 pages yeah, love it love it well we, we've condensed that into a, a summarized 52 and change minute chat here <laughs> which I've thoroughly enjoyed, and uh, I'm super happy you, you, you joined me today. So, Thank uh, you for having me, Sean. It was a pleasure. My privilege, yeah. too. Fantastic chat. And, of course, everybody listening, uh, I'll include a link to uh, the locations you can get the book. It's in a few different spots. And uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll include a link to uh, Todd's CISO Compass as well, because I think it's probably a good companion for folks uh, who straddle that line. And uh, anything else that uh, Dr. Lyons wants to share that, that she thinks would be helpful? Maybe mention a few frameworks, ISO 27001 and, and NIST, CSF, and privacy frameworks. Maybe those are good links. So I'll, I'll leave that for you, uh, Dr. Lyons, to think if there's anything else that can help folks prepare for this and, and a good companion to your book. And uh, thanks again for joining me. Thanks, everybody, for listening and watching. Uh, please do share with your friends and uh, subscribe for even more as we continue uh, operationalizing security and privacy uh, in, in business. So thanks, everybody. Thank you. Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers 
by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at Pentera.io. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Cybersecurity with Sean Martin, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this show and itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand with our conversations, you can sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.